for that welcome. And uh, I recognise probably most of you from the time when I was curate here at St Barnabas in 1991 and 1992, uh, when Crawford Murray was my training vicar here. And one of my first memories of St Barnabas is actually preaching in this pulpit uh, at my first evening service here. And I went up the pulpit, and some of you may remember how it was in those days. Uh, there was a dazzling white spotlight from over there uh, turned on to me, and all the lights of the church were then suddenly switched off. I understood that it was, uh, when I asked about this later, it was some sort of a 1950s dramatic thing that was still being used uh, 40 years later, and I was blinded by the light. I couldn't see anyone in the church building. For all I knew, you'd all sort of sneaked off one by one as uh, you got bored with the sermon and gone off to the pub instead. And when my voice had finished speaking, I feared that the lights would come back on and I would be found alone. I hope you're already picking up the references to the gospel reading this morning. Uh, I loved our time uh, here and still have very fond uh, friendship with both Crawford and Jennifer. And from here, I went on to be vicar of the parish of Ellesmere with six churches. And uh, I've done the maths, my first degrees in maths. If you painted the parish of Ellesmere in a certain colour, you would be able to see it. It's so large, you would be able to see that from the moon. And then from there, as was said, I went on to Christ College. And at the end of last year, I retired after being chaplain there for 24 years. There's a tradition of clergy revisiting uh, the places that they ministered in, a sort of a journey of closure, I guess. So that's why I asked Reverend Jenny if I could preach here. And it was only after I'd said um, uh, that she'd said yes to me about doing that, that Bishop Peter asked me to be priest in charge of St. Michael's by Riverside. I'd like to think that after a while, people would talk about Riverside as being by St. Michael's. Uh, so, so much for retirement when Bishop Peter asked me that. I have this card, uh, saying no to things, punch card. And uh, you once you say no to 10 things, you click it each time you say no uh, you're allowed to give yourself an ice cream. So I haven't started that card yet, and I've said yes to Bishop Peter. Um, but this is how I think we usually hear God's voice, isn't it? Maybe some people do hear God's voice from a cloud, as in today's story. For me, it's through reading the Bible, through other people, through nature, uh, through silence, uh, through movies and books, and through listening to my bishop. The Feast of the Transfiguration that we're celebrating today, the Feast of the Story, is on August the 6th, yesterday, but your parish has transferred it to today because it's such an important story. The dazzling white light is shone on Jesus and on who Jesus is. There's a dazzling light, a cloud that overshadows them, and they're terrified by that cloud, and there's a voice. Now, before the 15th century, only a few Christian communities had been keeping this feast day of the Transfiguration on August the 6th, and we'd probably not be celebrating this date if it wasn't for a terrible battle. On the 6th of August in 1456, news was announced in Rome that John Hunyadi had overcome the Turks near Belgrade, 
And the bells of many countries still ring out today to commemorate that slaughter which prevented the Turks from moving further into Europe. And Pope Callistus in Rome ordered that the whole church commemorate the victory by celebrating this feast of the Transfiguration. So this feast is really there because of a terrible battle. And the ambivalence of this feast day is highlighted because on this feast day in 1945, someone climbed not a holy mountain, but into the cockpit of a plane, a machine of war. There'd been a lull of a week in the fighting between America and Japan, and the Americans had a new secret weapon, and they wanted to use it with the maximum psychological effect. They prepared three atomic bombs. On the 16th of July, they tested one of these out in New Mexico. And now on August the 6th, one was dropped on Hiroshima, and three days later, the last one was dropped on Nagasaki. Each of these bombs had more than 2,000 times the blast power of the most powerful bomb that they'd used until then, the Grand Slam. We don't know how many people were killed. It's something between 90,000 and 146,000 people killed in Hiroshima and somewhere between 39,000 and 80,000 people killed in Nagasaki. And other people later died from the effects of the atomic radiation. 75,000 buildings were destroyed. Two cities were completely devastated and the world would never be the same again. At Hiroshima and Nagasaki, we have a new voice booming from heaven. We also have this brightness, brilliant as burning magnesium. There's a cloud that's come over us with a shadow, and truly under the shadow of this new cloud, we're right to feel afraid as we do continuing to watch the war in Europe at the moment, fearing that crap cloud might again erupt. We again, or maybe we should say we still live in a world with war. Now also in today's story, we're at a central point in, in Jesus' own story. So we, it's worth backing up a bit. Uh, obviously, Jesus has given up his work as a carpenter or a builder. He's joined John the Baptist's group by being baptized by John the Baptizer. And then John the Baptizer was imprisoned, you'll remember. And Jesus basically takes over a lot of what John the Baptizer has been doing and his teaching. And then John the Baptizer is executed. And this is a huge shock to Jesus. If you read the story, you'll see that he heads out of Palestine, Israel, and he doesn't want to be found. Jesus wants to spend time thinking this through. Jesus realizes that if he continues like this, what happened to John the baptizer will probably happen to him. And finally, he decides that he will carry on with this life and this message. And so we get to today's story. And Jesus is talking with Moses and Elijah. Moses representing the law part of the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, Jesus' own Bible, and Elijah representing the prophets part of Jesus' Bible. 
And what are they talking about? It says, and they were speaking of his departure, which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Jesus is having a conversation with Moses and Elijah about his suffering and his death. Jesus is making a decision. Will he continue on this track, even though he realizes that it will lead to suffering and death? And the Bible, the law and the prophets confirm the insight. If he continues this way, suffering and death will follow him. After this, that's when Jesus begins to teach. I am going to suffer and die. Now, there's something lost in the translation in the story. In the Greek, they're speaking about his exodus, his exodus, which Jesus was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. Exodus is that story of Moses, as you remember, leading the Hebrew people out of slavery in Egypt. And don't forget, that was also with suffering. It wasn't that they hopped out of Egypt, straight from slavery in Egypt, into the joy of the promised land. There are decades of suffering in the Exodus story. So what we call the transfiguration, this moment of Jesus with Moses and Elijah, when we see what's really going on underneath, that reality that's going on underneath is finally revealed and in some ways surprisingly and unexpectedly with Jesus on the cross. Now, wherever we go in the world, you meet up with a denial of this path. You find people teaching that, and preaching even that if you do A and B and C, you're guaranteed to be healthy and wealthy and happy. Everything will always be perfect for you. And if it's not perfect with you, if you're not 100% happy all the time, these teachings say, it's your fault. You didn't follow one of these specific steps. You're not doing it right. This teaching is false. This teaching is false. Reality can be capricious. Reality is unpredictable. Certainly, if you do certain things, you will suffer and you will cause suffering for others. But the opposite is not true. It's not true that there's some sort of formula which guarantees that everything will be perfect. Bad things happen to good people. If doing good always resulted in your life being great, just think about that for a moment. If doing good always meant that you were happy and healthy and wealthy, then no one would have any freedom. Everyone would only ever do good because why would you do something that didn't lead to your happiness, your wealth, and your health? We would only do good. And it wouldn't be doing good for goodness sake. We would do it so that our life would always be fun. Today's story, the revelation, I think, is saying don't don't hunt out suffering. Don't go looking for suffering. Don't inflict suffering on yourself or on others. Try your best to live a life in joy, but build up your inner strength, your inner resources, so that when the path you know you should follow ends up with suffering along it, you'll have the strength, like Jesus, to stay committed to the path that you know is right. We who are gathered here are challenged with a choice. 
Do we declare to the world that Jesus is God's beloved son, that we follow him, that we listen to him? We have with open eyes seen the symbols of the human heart, the mushroom cloud of power, control and hate, and the rough wooden cross of service, love and sacrifice. Which one will we choose?